We are in the midst of a When We Worship series here at Faith, looking at some different dynamics of what we do when we worship and why we do it. Last week, we started this series by looking at worship as a vertical dialogue, as a conversation that God begins and that we respond. God speaks and we respond. This week, we're looking at confession and assurance. Confession and assurance. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16 this morning. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is God's holy and infallible word for us. So a couple weeks ago, as happens far too often, we had a door-to-door salesman come to our front door. And he was trying to sell something or other, some cable or satellite TV package. And I just was not interested. I know the guy was just trying to make a living, but I just didn't want to hear it. But the thing is, once you open the door, you kind of got to have the conversation. So he asked if I was happy with my current provider, and I said, yep. And then he started talking about all, he could give me all these great channels, and I said, I get all the channels I want already. And then he started talking about how he could beat anyone else's rates, and I said, you know, we have antenna TV, it's free. I just was not interested, but he was just sure he could do something for me. So finally, I said, you know what? Are you going to pay me to provide this service? And nothing else I'd said had phased him, but that one made him stop and go, what? What? Are you going to pay me to use this service? And he said, well, no, we don't, we don't do that. And I said, well, that'd be what it'd take, honestly. That's what you're going to have to do to get me interested. So are you going to pay me? And he said, uh, No. So I said, great, have a nice day, and I shut the door. Yeah, I just didn't want what he was selling. I didn't feel a need for it in my life, and I was just ready to move on. So this morning, we're continuing our series on when we worship, and we're talking about confession and assurance. And honestly, when preachers talk about confession, sometimes it feels a bit like we're a door-to-door salesman trying to sell something that nobody wants. Sometimes when we start talking about our sinfulness and about our need to confess, you can just see those mental doors slamming shut because we just don't want to hear about it. One of the writers that I read this week talks about our worship reluctance, our worship reluctance. We often don't quite want to worship. There's something that pulls at us not to come to worship. And when we get here, there's something that pulls at us to not really engage in deep, heartfelt worship, but to always stand back just a little bit and keep ourselves just a little bit back and safe. 
Maybe we don't feel good enough to really stand before God. Maybe there's just something else we'd rather do. Maybe we feel like we are good enough that we don't need all of this stuff that church tries to give us. So we're a bit reluctant to really engage in deep worship often. And I think our worship reluctance may be the strongest when it comes to those times of confession and assurance. We don't want to confess. We don't want to admit that anything is wrong with us. It's a little unusual these days for a church even to have times of confession. It's not great salesmanship, to be honest with you. That guy who, turned the, who um, gave me that term, worship reluctance, also made the comment to contemporary people, to the average person who walks in the door, the idea of confessing your sins together with other people is just a little bit less offensive than having to go around naked in public. And nobody... Nobody wants to do that, right? We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to confess. But we need to. Because our sin is real and because it impacts every single one of us. Long, long ago and far, far away, there was a young family that moved to a new neighborhood. They got a nice, new, bigger house. They had a few kids. They had two boys especially who were good-hearted kids, but you know what happens when you say someone has good-hearted kids. Right after that, you have to say they were a handful. So one day, this mom was working in the kitchen, and the doorbell rang. So she went to the front door, not real interested in opening the door because usually it's a salesperson, but the guy looked okay, so she opened the door, and she had on that face that you have whenever you open the door to a stranger, that kind of suspicious, are you going to try to sell me something look? And the guy said, hi. Hi. I'm your neighbor. You don't know me. I think you also don't know that there are two naked little boys dancing on your garage roof. And the mom's thought was, of course I don't know that. What? So she screamed up the stairs, ran to the boy's bedroom, and it turned out that their bedroom window opened onto the garage roof, and these two kids had had the idea that it'd be fun to empty out their dresser and throw all the clothes out the window. And then when they ran out of clothes, they thought, hey, we've got clothes on. So they took off their clothes, and they threw those out the window. And then they got a little bored, so they thought, hey, we could dance out there. So they climbed out the window, and they started dancing on the garage roof. Now, your mother, as you might guess, didn't really follow that train of thought in the same way that the kids did. So she dragged them back through the window, climbed out on the roof, threw all their clothes back in, and then some discipline happened, and they established some new rules about window behavior and garage roofs and all these things you never think you're going to have to make rules about. As a parent, that's not what you want to hear. There's naked children dancing on your roof. But if that's actually happening, you want to know about it because you have to deal with it. And that's all of our position when it comes to sin. We like to pretend that everything's okay. We bury our sense of guilt as deep as we can. We try to ignore it. We don't want to admit it. But our sin is there. Our sin is there. And God sees it. And we need to deal with it. The first couple of verses that we read give us that dynamic. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must give account. Our sins are laid bare before God. 
We're really good at justifying our sin. We're really good at looking past it. But God sees past all our pretenses. He sees the times that we cheat the company just a little bit. He sees the times that we steal just a couple answers off someone else's test. He sees the second glances that we make that we know we shouldn't. The little things we do in private, the things we think no one could ever find out about, the things we're desperately hoping no one ever does find out about, God's already seen it. We've all messed up. We all stand helpless before the standard of perfection. Our text says that we're all laid bare, but the word there is actually a word that comes from being pinned in wrestling. And in wrestling, if you can get your opponent into a certain position and get them down on the mat in a certain way, the match is over. You cannot get away from a good pin. You can deny your pin, you can dislike it, you can fight it, you can do whatever you want, but if your opponent's a good wrestler and they've got you pinned, it is over. When you're pinned, you're pinned. And when it comes to sin, God's righteousness and his perfect law have all of us pinned down. We are objectively guilty before God. Now, in our contemporary culture, that idea of objective guilt doesn't always have a lot of currency in our lives. Maybe in our heads we know it's true, but not all of us experience that day to day. But another dynamic of our sin, another reality of our problem is that along with being objectively sinful and guilty, we're also subjectively broken and corrupted. We can talk about how our sin makes us guilty before God, but we can also talk about how sin corrupts us, about how sin breaks our lives apart. Sin makes us sick. And so our relationship with God falls apart, and our relationships with other people fall apart, and even our relationship with ourselves fall apart. We're ripped apart by envy and hate. We're driven and we're eaten up by pride. We're broken down by despair and hopelessness. Sin breaks us. And there is no hope to be found in this world. There are a lot of things in the world that claim to make our lives better. But the real message often is just that we are hopelessly broken. If you look at advertisements, advertisements promise us a better life. But that idea is premised on the fact that you are broken. Advertisements say to us, you are not good enough. Your life is not what you want it to be, is it? You are broken. But if you buy this product, if you buy the latest and greatest wheelbarrow, lipstick, car, clothes, whatever, then you'll be okay. And far too often we listen to that message and we go out and we buy something to make ourselves feel better, whether it's a cup of coffee or a new sports car. And that often makes us feel better for a little while, but then a minute, a week, and it doesn't matter anymore. And we're right back to the next advertisement that tells us, yeah, you've got the new car, but you're still broken. Come buy the next thing and you'll be better. And we buy the next thing, and we still get the message that we're broken. If you're into social media, you may have noticed that people mostly post highlights of their lives. You scroll through your feed, and you see beach vacations, and nice cars, and great food, and family all together and happy, 
And you never or hardly ever see the brokenness. There's actually been studies that show that people who really engage a lot with social media are more prone to depression and feel worse about their lives. This thing that's supposed to entertain us just shows us that we can't measure up. Unless we are constantly on the beach, on vacation, with our perfect family and a great meal in front of us, our lives are never as good as Facebook shows us that everyone else's life is. There's always the next thing. There's always the next post. There's always the next thing to buy. We're broken. And none of these things heal us. In the long run, they just make our lives worse if we try to use them to make us feel okay. And that's why we need confession. Confession reorients us to the reality that our lives are broken. And it opens us up to find true freedom. We're really good at burying our sin. We're really good at tuning out the warning signs that we're in trouble. And we're really good at getting ourselves stuck. We're really good at getting into these patterns of brokenness and false hopes being raised and dashed over and over again. We've all got problems, and we're really good at trying to paper over it. But the first step to healing our brokenness is to admit that we are broken. A college professor was doing some research on alcoholics, so we spent a few, you know, quite a while going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. He saw all kinds of things, but once he was sitting there, and there was this really well-dressed, well-put-together young man who was going on and on in that meeting. His past was full of people who'd betrayed him and wronged him and done all these terrible things, and his future plans were all about how he was going to get back at everybody because he was wronged. But for the people who knew, for the people in that circle in that room that day who knew the signs, they could tell what is past and future, sure, but his present was being consumed more and more by alcohol. He couldn't deal with his problems. He couldn't admit that he was in the wrong, and so he was drinking himself to death. So as they sat there and listened, an older guy, a guy with dreadlocks, looked kind of rough, maybe in his 50s, Maybe that's not all that old to you. But anyway, older than the young guy who was sure he was right, he leaned over to that college professor and said, yeah, you know, I used to be like that. That used to be me until I discovered low self-esteem. That used to be me until I discovered low self-esteem. And by that, this guy didn't mean that he'd come to hate himself, just that he'd given up self-justification. He'd taken off his blinders, he'd really looked at the patterns in his life, and he'd recognized that he had a problem. And when he finally recognized that he had a problem, when he finally went after being honest with himself, with his family, with the people around him, then he could finally get help making things better. Confession opens us up to hope. Now, confession by itself doesn't get us too far. If all we do is whine and whimper and worry about our guilt and brokenness and focus on that, we're still stuck. Maybe we're in a better place than if we don't confess, but all confession by itself does is get us stuck. And that's why after our times of confession, we have a time of assurance of pardon. 
sometimes all of us get stuck at the point of confession. And that's one of the dangers of reading the law as we did this morning, that all we hear is everything that's wrong with us and we feel like we never could be good enough and we're stuck. But it is not the Christian thing. It is not the Christian way to stop at guilt. After the Bible assures us that God sees through all our pretenses, it continues to give us hope that the Lord forgives and heals us. The Bible addresses both our guilt and our brokenness. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest, Jesus, and it tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can actually go to God and be assured that we're forgiven. We are privileged to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And that particular language of the throne of grace there brings up an image from the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, most of the people, the ordinary people, couldn't get real close. It'd be like if we came to church here and none of you were allowed in the sanctuary. You could kind of come in, but you had to keep your distance. An ordinary priest could go up to the altar, but no further. And the great high priest, only now and then, could actually go and meet directly with God. But Hebrews tells us that now, because of Christ's work, all of us are welcome to meet with God. Because of the work of Christ, all of us have been authorized to stand with God. That word for draw near that we read in verse 16 has its roots in worship language. It goes back to this idea of people drawing near and gathering together in worship. And that word that's translated in verse 16 as confidence, well, it kind of gives you that sense of an open conversation, people getting together in public and just having a good, open, honest conversation. So what Hebrews tells us to do is to come together in worship with each other and to have a good, open, honest conversation with the Lord. Last week, I talked about how worship, worship services are this conversation where God speaks to us and we respond to Him. And that's what our times of confession and assurance are about. We come before God and we're honest. We admit that we messed up again. And God comes to us and He speaks His truth into our lives. And He says that He's forgiven us and that He's made things right and that He will continue to make things right right. Confession reorients us to reality, and the assurance of pardon tells us that we are forgiven and that we do have hope. Sometimes we forget that we're sinful. Sometimes, though, we forget that we're forgiven. We can get stuck, even as good Christian people, thinking that it's all about us being good Christian people. And really, that's not the good news. The good news is not that we're gathered here as good people. The good news is that we are gathered here as God's people. We don't have to be okay because God makes us okay. In confession, we admit that we aren't okay, and God responds by assuring us that in Him we are. The good news, the gospel, tells us that we're not okay, but that God has changed us forever. 
So confession and assurance remind us of that unpleasant truth that we are broken. And then they also bring us into that great and wonderful truth that God heals us. A call to confession can sound terribly out of date to us. It can sound irrelevant. It's not hip to say we have to confess. But the call to confession is a call to real freedom. Do you ever feel fake? Do you ever feel like you're just faking it? Do you ever feel like if people really knew all about you, that we would laugh you out of this church, that your family would kick you out, that you'd be laughed right off your job? Do you ever feel like you're not good enough? Do you ever feel like you get up in the morning and you have to put on this fake mask so that people won't reject you and so that you can go out and face the world? Well, you probably, you probably aren't able to fix all your own problems. You probably aren't the best person in the world. There probably are things in your life that aren't real good. But Jesus, Jesus was the best person who ever lived. The best person the world has ever seen. And Jesus knows everything about you. Every single thing. Every single thing. And yet Jesus loves us. And yet Jesus gives you mercy and grace in your time of need. Because Jesus did enough for all of us, you don't have to do it all. Because of Jesus' work, you can rest from all your faking and all your performing. Sometimes we get so uptight and so wound up in our brokenness. But when we engage in confession, that helps us to open up. And when we receive God's assurance of pardon, that tells us that you can let go, that you don't need to be good enough because Jesus is all the Savior you'll ever need. Christian confession gives us the opportunity to be honest and God's assurance of pardon brings us into the reality that we are forgiven and healed and that God loves us forever. The BBC has been doing a modern retelling of the Sherlock Holmes story the last few years. And one of the storylines has been that Dr. John Watson, Sherlock's sidekick, meets this lady called Mary Morstan. And they fall in love and they get married and everything is great. But as the series proceeds, it turns out that this woman, Mary, has a terrible past. You're left to figure out the details for yourself, but it's pretty sure she's been an assassin. She has killed a lot of people and done a lot of terrible things. And after John finds all this out about his wife, his wife, Mary, gives him a memory stick and says, everything that I've done is on this memory stick, all of it. There are no secrets anymore. It's all there. Look at it whenever you want, but please don't look at it when I'm there because when you're done looking through all the stuff on that stick, there is no way you will love me anymore and I cannot bear to watch you stop loving me. So John takes the stick and he puts it away and they have these weird few months where they just don't talk about it. And then on Christmas Day, John gets the stick out and he says to Mary, we're going to deal with this today. And she responds, today? Months of not talking about this, and you want to deal with it on Christmas? Okay. 
And then John takes the stick and he looks at Mary and he looks at the stick and he throws the stick in the fireplace. And the fire burns it all up. And John says something like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all done. We're going to get on with our lives now. That's all finished. That's what God has done for all of us. He's taken all our guilt, all the bad things we've done, all the things that we think would make no one who knew about them really love us. And in the work of Jesus and in the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, God has burned up all our guilt and he is at work to get rid of all of our brokenness. We aren't at the end of the story yet. We keep sinning. We keep covering over our sin. And that's why we keep doing confession and hearing assurance. We need to be reminded that God really does love us and that we really are free from all of that. The rhythm of confession and assurance orients us to the reality that we are in Christ. The deepest reality of our lives as Christians is that in Jesus, in Jesus, we receive mercy and we find grace in our time of need. So we continue to draw near to God with honesty and with confidence. We keep going back to Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus keeps giving us grace and life, healing and hope. When we turn to Jesus, we receive mercy and we find grace in our time of need.